seriously popular. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello, I'm Natasha Livingston. Royal Correspondent for The Mail on Sunday. Welcome to The Crown, Fact or Fiction. This is the third of our special podcast where we tell you about the events that would be essential to include in a future series of The Crown, and we take a guess at how they'd be represented. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, royal biographer and columnist, Robert Hartman. Hello, Natasha. And yes, as you'll have heard in the last couple of episodes, we are moving forward with the crown from where they left off and imagining what they would have done. Last time around, we looked at some of those great events in 2012, and this episode moves us forward from those events. Tonight, the Queen thanked her loyal subjects for celebrating her 60-year reign. Mr. President, Mr. President, Mr. President, Prince Philip and I are delighted to welcome you both. I'm delighted to welcome you to Buckingham Palace this evening. To London. To Buckingham Palace. So glad that you are visiting again. In earlier addresses to the Scottish Parliament... The Queen commands this honourable house to attend Her Majesty immediately. It's now my great privilege to invite Your Majesty as the head of the Commonwealth. She was in central London to open the National Cybersecurity Centre. It is a great pleasure to visit the BBC today. Ladies and gentlemen, please stand for Her Majesty the Queen. The Queen was among those who know what it's like to be getting older, with veterans of the Army and Navy to celebrate their 100th anniversary. An English couple have had a wedding day they'll never forget after their ceremony was gate-crashed by Queen Elizabeth. It's just wild, isn't it? We start off this episode with the Queen, understandably, feeling a little worn out from her engagements throughout 2012. 
let's face it, 2012 was an extraordinary year. You had the Queen's Diamond Jubilee, 60 years on the throne. We had the London Olympics. But actually, if you look at the list of engagements for that year, the list is very much longer than that. There were many meetings with heads of state, governors general, representatives, prime ministers from countries as varied as Canada, India, Pakistan, Jamaica, all part of the Commonwealth. Also European neighbours, France, Germany, Ireland, Norway, and the Emir of Qatar. There were plenty of parliamentary duties. There was the state opening of Parliament, of course, and there was a jubilee address to Parliament. There were the usual military celebrations like the birthday parade, Trooping the Colour, Remembrance Sunday. And there were moments of very great personal significance, uh, as we touched on in our earlier special episode, the one we called I Was Glad. 2012 was the year that she met Martin McGuinness, the former IRA boss who had spent a large part of his life trying to blow her and her family to pieces. And on top of all that, the Queen uh, was also in hospital in March 2012, a very rare event, actually. She was very seldom in hospital, but she had quite a serious stomach bug in March 2012, although as soon as she recovered, she was straight back on duty. So it was a draining year, a very happy year, a lot of very important moments. But for a monarch now in her late 80s, as she was, uh, it was quite demanding, wasn't it, Natasha? Yeah, I mean, I'm feeling tired just thinking about all of those engagements. <laughs> I'm only 25 years old. So what we're saying is that the Queen's 2012 would have been a busy year for anybody, let alone for an 86-year-old. And we think that at this point, the Crown might depict the Queen thinking about upcoming events and questioning her ability to keep up with the demands of her schedule. And this really was going on, Natasha. I mean, this these were thoughts people were having at the time at the palace. And I think the Crown would be using this sort of time to have the Queen reflecting on the fact she's now in her late 80s, the fact that it's time to, as it were, move the Prince of Wales into a more prominent position, and frankly, to take on some of the heavy lifting. I think the Crown would probably begin this episode jumping back one year to 2011. That was when the Queen undertook her last round-the-world tour, if you like. She went to Australia in the autumn of 2011 to attend the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting, Chogham as they're known. She loved the Commonwealth. She loved Australia. She's Queen of Australia. And actually, this trip would carry an enormous poignancy because it was unstated at the time, but I think everybody knew, and the Queen certainly knew, this was the last time she was going to see Australia, a country. She had so many strong memories of visiting, going all the way back to that extraordinary, epic 53-54 tour of New Zealand and Australia. All through the years, so many trips down under. But she knew that this wasn't going to happen again. Uh, when I was writing my biography of the Queen, I interviewed the then Australian Prime Minister, Julia Gillard, first female Australian Prime Minister. And she was the Queen's, effectively, Queen's sort of escort and host on that trip. And she said to me, she said as she took the Queen to the airport to fly home, she saw tears in the Queen's eyes because the Queen knew this is it. This is goodbye. 
And it was a very successful visit in terms of the reaction to the Queen from Australians. And I was reading through some of the analysis about why it was such a successful visit. And part of the writing at the time was that it was this element that it was the last chance to see the Queen in Australia. There was that feeling that, you know, part of the reason why so many thousands of people turned up to various different royal engagements on that trip was, yeah, this could have been the last time and it was the last time that she visited. This week has proved that there's still a huge appetite for Her Majesty here. This school looks after indigenous children struggling in mainstream education. The Queen saw how sport plays a big part in the curriculum. Her Majesty was then inundated with presents. The usual flowers, of course. Then some kangaroo stew cooked by home economics pupils. Recently made? Recently made? Inquired Her Majesty. Some scones as well, wrapped in a Perth tea towel. How good was that? You got to make scones for the Queen. Oh my gosh, I was so nervous. <laughs> my heart was just skipping a beat. <laughs> Having visited the college here, the Queen will now turn her attention to matters of the Commonwealth. Heads of government are meeting here in Perth and the Queen will open the conference tomorrow. But for now, it's the people of the Commonwealth, not its politics, which is uppermost in the Queen's mind. It ended on a wonderful high note. There was this enormous open-air barbecue cook-off going on in Perth. I mean, she was obviously there for the Commonwealth Summit. There was all the usual formalities of the Commonwealth Summit, but it just ended up with this vast outdoor barbie going on. And uh, it was a very happy occasion. But it was definitely the point at which the Queen, her officials, and the Prince of Wales, his officials, and the Commonwealth were starting to think, OK, where do we go from now on? How is this royal operation going to work? If we don't have the Queen travelling these sort of distances, it's going to have to be the Prince of Wales. And how do we ensure that the Queen's authority remains absolutely undiminished, but at the same time, we give the Prince of Wales a stronger position. Now, we know the Crown loves this sort of theme of Prince Charles constantly agitating to be king, wanting his mother to step aside, all complete rubbish, as we know, as I know, as I say in my new book about him, that was not the case. But I can see the Crown really milking that for all it's worth. Definitely. And I think we know that they love to make a big deal about royal trips abroad. They're just very exciting, as you say. You can see the Australian sunshine. And I think they would love to recreate that great Aussie barbecue that you discussed. I've got some of the stats from it here. There were more than 130,000 sausages, 18,000 litres <laughs> well of tomato sauce and 8,000 loaves of bread at this barbecue. So Australia really did pull out all the stops um, for the Queen. Uh, we all know how much Prince Philip loved a barbecue. I, I wasn't there, but I wish I had been. <laughs> But the official reason that she was in Australia was for the Commonwealth Heads mm -hmm. of State meeting. Most people know how important the Commonwealth was to the Queen. But what actually happens at a Heads of State meeting? These are a bit like family reunions, really. It's the one time all the nations of the Commonwealth gather in a designated country. It moves around each time. And... There's quite a lot of political hardball. I mean, all the prime ministers, the foreign ministers of all the countries. So at the time, it was David Cameron and his foreign secretary, William Hague, for Britain. As I say, Julia Gillard was the prime minister of Australia. They all come together and could get quite heated, actually, particularly on issues like human rights. The Commonwealth is a very, very broad church. It's got everything from, you know, 
G7 nations and very progressive democracies around the world to borderline dictatorships. It's no secret that the majority of countries in the Commonwealth, certainly at that time, still criminalized people being gay. Homosexuality was outlawed. Quite a few countries in the dock for various human rights abuses. So it could always get quite heated at the political level. But the Queen, or the and now the King, never gets involved in that side of things. That's for the politicians to argue about around the conference table. Away from the conference table, there are social events, there's always a big dinner, there are receptions, and there are sort of reminders of all the things that bind Commonwealth nations together, the shared language, the shared legal codes, the shared way of governing. Uh, most Commonwealth countries have very similar parliamentary systems, very similar judicial systems. And so there's a lot of overlap, a lot of Commonwealth charities would be at these things. So as well as being a political punch-up at times... It was also a social event, and that's where the Queen would come in, and that was the bit she enjoyed. Looking through cuttings from the time, it almost has a feel of a state visit, some of the engagement she was going to. It was very similar, that kind of soft power engagements going on boats and visiting crowds in all the big cities. It really, she didn't just kind of travel to one place for the meeting and no, that was it. No, it really sort always, of moved she around. She bolt on a, a proper tour of wherever it was. And of course, in Australia, she was the head of state. So she's Queen of Australia on that trip. There's no question. The, the British government just stands back. And she did. She went all over the country and the big crowds came out because, as you say, no one officially said it, but for a lot of Australians, it was this may be the last time we see her. Lining the river, 45,000 people wave and cheer, squeezing onto any space available or taking to the water themselves. The Queen is seeing Brisbane and its impressive river under perfect conditions, but at the start of the year, this city looked very different. Dozens died in the worst floods for a generation. Three quarters of Queensland was declared a disaster zone. We are here to pay tribute to the resilience and courage of Queenslanders who bravely picked up their lives and rebuilt them after a period of great adversity. It means a lot to me. It really does. It's a person who, who, who's, who's taken the time to come and see people who really, really suffer. And you can't do much better than that. She's handling it so wonderfully and she's just so gracious and lovely and she really wants to know. She really cares. It wasn't totally gaff-free. And again, this is where it kind of feels more like a state visit. She was opening a Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne and she was in this quite nice pink outfit. But unfortunately, it blended in with the exact same colour as all of the staff uniforms so in the picture. But it looked like she was almost working with this hospital. Um, I think Prince Philip at one point was also gifted a eucalyptus twig, um, which had kind of Aboriginal significance. But he apparently accepted it and just said, I'll put it on the nest, kind of pointing at this pile of sticks, whereas the Queen was very gracious and was, of course, you know, thank you very much. But generally, the Queen really, really was a, a big hit. And there are a lot of quotes from Australians saying how much they really loved the Queen. Mm, a reminder of just what an extraordinary monarch she was. Attention focused once again on the London hospital where Prince Philip was admitted earlier in the year. Kate was driven here to the King Edward VII hospital by car from her family home in Berkshire. 
The royal family decided that under the circumstances, they had no option but to make a public announcement about her pregnancy. When the announcement was made, the congratulations followed within minutes. It's absolutely wonderful news and I'm delighted for them. I'm sure they'll make absolutely brilliant parents and I'm sure everyone around the country will be celebrating with them tonight. And so, while the Queen is focusing on her very important role as head of state, a more personal story would probably run in parallel, as we know the Crown likes to do. 2012 was the year that it emerged that Kate, then Duchess of Cambridge, was pregnant. But the way that the world officially found out wasn't in the way that you might expect. It wasn't a calm and measured announcement from Buckingham Palace press office. It was something a little bit more dramatic. The news of the pregnancy was rather rushed, actually. I think Kensington Palace had been hoping to put it out as tradition dictates at around the 12-week mark of the pregnancy. But on December the 3rd, 2012, the Duchess of Cambridge was brought into hospital, suffering from very serious morning sickness. I'm not a doctor, but I believe the term is hyperemesis gravidarum. And clearly, at that point, the palace took the decision, look, and there's no point trying to hide things. And so it was announced that she was in the very early stages of pregnancy. And you can imagine how excited the world was. Now, This was huge news across the world, wasn't it, Robert? It certainly was. It was one of those moments where, if you look back, they were interrupting news bulletins in Saskatchewan, uh, Adelaide, Hong Kong. I mean, it was effectively what everybody wants to know about the British monarchy. There's going to be another generation. There's going to be a future king or queen. At that point, we had no idea, obviously, what the sex was. The exciting news was that on the back of that amazing royal wedding in 2011, sure as night follows day, a pregnancy announcement came a year later. It's hard to overstate just how big this news was, isn't it? Absolutely. The royal historian Kate Williams told BBC News at the time that the news of the baby had become a frenzy, with the Duchess being on the front page of many newspapers in the UK and across the world. She said, this baby is the most sought after, the biggest celebrity baby really in history. Quite an accolade. It's quite a claim. And it wasn't just covered in newspapers around the world. There were also congratulations given um, from politicians and presidents and prime ministers all across the globe. Yeah, and you just think, God, poor Catherine, uh, Duchess of Cambridge, she's feeling awful. And suddenly this thing is just upon them. Everyone's sending in best wishes as that whole sort of upbeat mood. But actually... you've got so much to worry about, haven't you? Yeah, she must have been feeling pretty rotten and she spoke about it um, quite a few years later saying that she was using mindfulness and meditation at the time to try and cope with the sickness. She said in an interview that the illness meant that she was not the happiest of pregnant people and really used this kind of deep breathing and meditation to try and take her mind off the sickness um, which continued um, all the way through to her labour. And of course, we must remember, we are projecting or predicting what the Crown would be doing about all this. Do you think the Queen would have been um, skipping around the room? Would she be worried? What would Charles's reaction be? How do you think we'd be watching this in our putative episode of The Crown? I think they would probably be quite worried about how Kate was doing, particularly if this whole news came out in a way that they didn't quite want or hadn't planned for. You would imagine that caring for her well-being would be the absolute priority in their mind, and that would be also quite a good storyline for The Crown. And I think it might be the point at which they return to uh, perhaps Bucklebury. We might see Carol Middleton back in the script. But for now, I think The Crown is going to be going back to that idea of a 
succession in all but name, the gradual passing of the baton to the Prince of Wales. Thank you for your kind welcome. My wife and I are very glad indeed to be joining you here in Colombo. At the personal request of the Queen, I am delighted to be addressing you this morning on behalf of the head of the Commonwealth. So moving forward into 2013, we think at this point, the Crown's version of the Queen would have made the decision to ask Prince Charles to attend the Commonwealth Heads of State meeting, which is something that did really happen. We know that the Commonwealth meant a lot to the Queen and this position where she's passing on responsibility to her son is probably something that was quite emotional and that's something that the Crown could really play up in any potential recreation of this. Robert, how did it really happen? There was a lot of thought around the royal household as to how this would work, Natasha, because, yes, the Queen had decided, that's it, I'm not doing any more long-haul travel. I think in part because she knew that the Duke of Edinburgh was getting on in years as well and that these things were a challenge for him. So the decision was taken that it should be Prince Charles in her place at the summit in Sri Lanka. And, yes, we can imagine the Crown really um, building this up, the Queen somewhat wistfully facing up to the fact that her beloved Commonwealth, her family of nations were going to meet, she wasn't going to be there. And no doubt the Crown would have had Prince Charles rubbing his hands together, thinking, you know, at last, this is my time. In fact, he went, uh, I was there, he was um, extremely practical about it, he was happy to be there, but he made very clear that he was there in her place, and that he was there to extend her best wishes, not to stamp his own mark on the event. And so in the end, here was the first chogum in as long as anyone could remember where the Queen was not going to be turning up. Now, when I first heard you say that, Robert, I thought you were choking on some sort of food. But Chogum <laughs> is the official acronym, isn't it, of the Commonwealth Heads of State meeting? Commonwealth Heads of Government. Heads of Government, hence the uh, the uh, Um Yeah, <laughs> so um, it's just known in diplomatic circles around the world. People just talk about Chogums, and you're right. I mean, it does sound ghastly. But doesn't sound as good as NATO, does it? That's a much better No, it, you're, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> but here we were at the Colombo Chogum, and uh, he it was quite a bumpy ride, actually. It was not a harmonious summit. I mean, these things are always sort of slightly fraught with political rows. But in this case, Colombo had only recently been suffering bombs, explosions, assassinations. Sri Lanka had been through a very bloody civil war. There were these accusations of human rights violations by the uh, regime of the ruling president, Rajapaska. And and a lot of people were very unhappy about this, with the result that actually some of the big names stayed away. So Canada and India were among those who actually decided not to send their prime ministers because they felt that Sri Lanka was, if you like, in the dock. David Cameron did go for the British government and had some pretty heated words with the president. So it was not by any means a happy event. And actually, the presence of Prince Charles was very welcome because you know, he wasn't going to get into the politics. He wasn't going to start you know, wagging his finger. That's not what monarchy does. And that's not what the head of the Commonwealth is supposed to do. So you had the Commonwealth fighting among itself, the head of the Commonwealth not there, her representative, Prince Charles, 
being very much a sort of conciliatory figure. And I do remember this rather wonderful banquet where everybody turned up and there were all the palace gold and silver were being flown in and they have these special Commonwealth goblets that oh, live in a cupboard. Chogum goblets. Chogum goblets, <laughs> they are. Uh, and they each have on them, they have the name of each individual country. All this was laid out. The royal chefs came in, the royal footmen came in and laid out this banquet. At the end of which, Prince Charles delivered this delightful speech where he simply talked about having grown up in and around the Commonwealth. And he started mentioning some of these Commonwealth leaders he'd known as a boy. And you suddenly saw around the room the sort of bubble popping out of the head of all these leaders thinking, actually, this guy knows more about the Commonwealth than anybody else in this room. You know, he was mentioning how uh, I remember meeting President Nkrumah of Ghana. I mean, Nkrumah was a sort of godlike figure from the early 60s. And in here in 2013, Prince Charles is talking about him. He talked about going water skiing with the uh, famously cantankerous Prime Minister of Malta, Dom Mintoff. I mean, all these names sort of in Commonwealth, in Chogham folklore, were just sort of tripping off the tongue. And I think it was a very subtle way of the Prince of Wales just gently saying to all these people, look, I'm not exactly a novice when it comes to this organisation. And uh, sure enough, in years to come, they would embrace him. 45 why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. So even though Prince Charles's challenging trip to Sri Lanka was big royal news, it was slightly outshined by the absolutely massive royal news that came several weeks earlier, which of course was the birth of the royal baby. Yep, we had an heir to the heir to the heir. And that was enormous news. I mean, I remember being outside the hospital you couldn't get anywhere near St. Mary's Paddington for days because the, the forest of stepladders and they just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and these photographers. photographers. Yeah, I mean, they were literally stepladders going up to the sort of first floor windows. No one could get anywhere near the place. It was bedlam, but it was happy bedlam. Everybody wanted to be there to find out and to see that, that wonderful moment when royal parents come out onto the steps of the Linde Wing, St. Mary's Paddington, holding a child who will one day be monarch. Every baby born is a moment of celebration, but when it's a royal baby and it's the first in line, or will be the first in line, that's big. It 
it is a slightly strange tradition. I imagine it's something that people that, you know, come from a different country that don't know much about the monarchy might just think is slightly odd. And one thing that really struck me watching the footage, and particularly of Kate coming out, you know, having only just given birth. I mean, she's all put together. She's had her hair done. She's in this really nice dress and amazingly in heels. And I said, it takes a lot for me to wear heels on any day. Props to her for making that <laughs> making that work. But yeah, the interest in the birth was pretty astronomical. I mean, even the footage, you can see, as, as he said, the crowds of press outside. And presumably they would have been there for days. Oh, there were birth. fights going on. People were sort of chaining their ladders to bits of street furniture. And then other people were coming along with wire cutters in the middle of the night, taking one person's ladder away and then chaining their ladder up. It could have really turned into a bit of a drama if there'd been a sort of ladder collapse. Yeah. And there were, there were a lot of police there. And we all had to have special passes, really, to get within sort of 100 yards of the front door of the hospital. People didn't mind because underlying it all was this great sense of excitement and happiness. It was also very interesting because there's always been that tradition with royal births that they would be announced on an easel in the palace forecourt. And what had happened with earlier pregnancies is that a sort of footman would come out, uh, prop up an easel, and there would be a notice on it saying, so-and-so has been safely delivered of a child and the time of the birth and the baby's weight and all that sort of thing. And this time around, they clearly decided that's just not going to work. We live in a digital 24-7 news age. So actually, the the basic details were, it's a boy. This is what he weighed. This is when he's born. That was sent out digitally to all the newsrooms around the world. But nonetheless, people love that tradition of the easel. So a few hours later, I remember the privy purse door of the palace opened and out came liveried footmen and they propped up the easel and there were queues for hours, probably for days actually. People just wanted to come along, see the easel, take a picture of the easel. I think at one point the easel even had its own Twitter feed. It became a thing. But of course, nothing could possibly beat the moment when the door of the uh, hospital opened and out came, as you say, the most stylish and composed-looking new mum uh, holding little George. I have a distinct memory of this, which has to be couched in the fact that I was 15 years old. It was the summer holidays, and I was camping with a friend at the bottom of the garden. But I'd actually, at this point, snuck out to a party, which was obviously very <laughs> naughty of me. But my mum was so excited about this news, the baby had been named George, that she came down to the garden to tell me this news to then find that um, I disappeared. So I got in a lot of trouble. But that just shows, you know, I have to say, my family don't typically pay close attention to the news. But this was such massive news that she literally came out the house to, to share it. It was just a reminder of the way in which monarchy is just so different from a republic because, you, you know, you have this family and we all want to sort of be part of their great moments. And in any family, the arrival of a baby is a big thing. And when it's a royal baby, the world does go slightly bonkers. There was one journalist, the BBC uh, presenter, Simon McCoy, who couldn't have been less interested in any of this and actually became famous for his sort of nonchalant dispatches, which are sort of along the lines of, oh, well, we're waiting for a baby. It hasn't arrived yet. Well, there we are. There's no baby yet. And it, it didn't matter. You know, some people reacted with huge excitement, sort of Republicans shrugged. But there was a very important constitutional precedent at stake here because while everyone was excited about the arrival of a baby, the possibility of a baby set in motion 
what can only be described as a sort of constitutional revolution. It was a couple of years earlier, David Cameron, uh, then Prime Minister, had, I think, very wisely noted that as soon as the uh, royal wedding had happened, it was highly likely that there would be a royal baby. Now, what would happen if William and Catherine, if their firstborn was a girl, and then along came a boy. The boy, as the rules stood, would have superseded the girl. And what message would that be sending out in a 21st century world that's preaching equality? So that really crystallized in royal minds, but equally in political minds, that there needed to be a change. We've talked about that Perth Chogham, that Perth Commonwealth meeting. That was important because that was where Cameron raised this point with the prime ministers of all the other Commonwealth realms. Because if you're going to tinker with the laws of succession in Britain, you're tinkering with the laws of succession as to who's going to be the head of state of Australia, Canada, Jamaica, Belize, Papua New Guinea, all the other countries, at which point uh, there were 15 other ones apart from Britain. So they all had to agree, and they all did agree. They all saw the point. For years, we'd been told it was absolutely impossible to change the laws of succession because it was a constitutional hot potato. People always use the phrase, it's a Pandora's box. We can't change it because it'll be pulling apart this bit of legislation or that bit of legislation. Actually, it was surprisingly straightforward. Cameron had said to all the other countries, look, it's surely in this day and age wrong that a girl gets pushed aside by a boy. Can we all agree on that? And they all went, yep, we can agree on that. He also said, by the way, and it's pretty absurd that a member of the royal family still can't marry a Roman Catholic without losing their place in the line of succession. Can we agree that's outdated? And they went, yeah, we can. So, from then on, all those countries then had to go back to their parliaments and draft, you know, quite complicated legislation in some cases. But to make sure that all this legislation was ready and done quickly, because the moment that William and Catherine's child was born, you know, whatever the rules were, people were going to start applying them. And so there was great excitement because if their firstborn had been a girl, that really would have been history because they'd have been able to say, this girl is not going to be pushed aside by a prince in future. They could go and have as many princes as they like, but the firstborn is going to be number one. And if it's a girl, then she will be queen. So... When it turned out it was a boy, there was a slight sense of sort of anticlimax in one regard. I mean, everyone was delighted that Catherine and, and William had a healthy, bouncy boy. But there was a sense that, oh, God, no queens for, frankly, the rest of our lifetime, because you now knew that after Elizabeth II, we were going to get a king. After him, we were going to get a king. Now, after William, we're going to get another king. Yeah, I mean, it makes the debate and the law changes all kind of academic, because it's mm. in practice not going to be put in yep. place for a very long yep. time. Uh, there was a slight sense of, God, we've gone to all that trouble to change the rules, and we didn't need to. But nonetheless, I think it was seen as an important constitutional point. It also, there was a change to the Royal Marriages Act, which rules, had ruled that uh, any linear descendant of George II had to get the monarch's permission to marry. 
And this had got completely out of control because by now, you know, linear descendants of George II, there were, there were hundreds, if not thousands of them. There were people all around the world who were sort of great, 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 great grandchildren of George II who had no idea that they were and that they therefore needed the Queen's permission to marry. And I remember talking to the clerk of the Privy Council at the time. He said, actually, we are aware of several marriages that are technically illegal because one or other of the parties should have sought the Queen's permission and didn't. And I said, but what are you going to do about it? So we're not going to do anything about it. I mean, we're just going to ignore it. But it was another constitutional loose end to tie up. So from that point on, as well as saying, girls shall not be trumped by a boy, as well as saying, anybody can marry a Roman Catholic, except the rule still says that if you are going to be monarch, you are going to be supreme governor of the Church of England, you have to be in communion with the Church of England. But that bit of sort of sectarian discrimination, that was removed. You now only have to ask the monarch for permission if you're one of the first six in line to the throne. So all these changes came in. We can imagine the crown having enormous fun with with some of the sort of the what-ifs. There were a lot of worries, actually, in a lot of very aristocratic families because people were saying, well, hang on, if the monarchy's changed now, if a boy no longer trumps girl, then why is the Duke of this, the Earl of that, Viscount so-and-so? Why is their younger son inheriting the castle, the estate, all the land, and not the eldest daughter? And that's a debate that still goes on to this day, because although it changed the rules regarding the monarchy, it didn't change the rules regarding the peerage. So Britain's aristocratic, Britain's nobility still subscribes to the old rule. So we could see the crown having masses of fun with this, I think. But overall, at the same time, I think they would have definitely uh, have, have enjoyed the drama and some of the comedy. And and let's face it, I mean, I think the, the, the you know the, the Queen was straight round to Kensington Palace to see the baby. I think they'd have been playing on that natural human emotion that goes with a new arrival. I mean, we know that the Crown have recreated some of the Queen's imagined dreams. So maybe they could have done a dream of the Queen imagining a kind of young little princess turned Queen, you know, being born and being her granddaughter. But then, alas, reality not quite uh, working out that, <laughs> that way. Well, they did have a ghost. Maybe we could have had the ghost of Queen Victoria popping up, oh, coming wow. back to say, uh, <laughs> oh, no, it's a boy. <laughs> Was this goodbye? The Queen's final appearance at a meeting of Commonwealth leaders... Palace officials, of course, will not be party to any speculation. But with Prince Charles in prominent attendance, the Queen's address did have a valedictory feel, looking back and perhaps looking forward, with a reference to the son she hopes will succeed her as head of the Commonwealth. I feel enormously proud of what the Commonwealth has achieved, and all of it within my lifetime. The next two Commonwealth gatherings are planned in places too far away for the Queen. Inevitably then, there is talk now of a fond farewell. So after the happiness of the royal birth, we think it's likely that the crown would take a sentimental turn and cover the Queen's bittersweet visit to Malta in 2015. The crown loves to reminisce about the Queen's memories in Malta. But Robert, why was the Queen heading there in 2015? 
So in 2015, the Commonwealth is meeting again because every other year, usually in odd years, the Commonwealth comes together and they decided to have their 2015 meeting in Malta. Now, it wasn't explicitly said at the time, but certainly one of the reasons for choosing Malta as a location was it was a Commonwealth country within striking distance of the Queen. Because in the meantime, and I'm quite sure the Crown would have made a lot of this, The Queen had decided that she was not only going to stop doing long-haul travel, she was going to stop travelling altogether. So, as we said earlier, in 2011, having been to Australia, she said, right, that's it, I'm not doing any more long-haul flights. There were a few then visits uh, to European destinations over the next few years. She went to see the President of Italy and the Pope in 2014. In 2015, she paid a state visit to Germany. But towards the end of 2015, there was this Commonwealth visit coming up in Malta, And she'd made it very clear, that's it. After this, I'm never leaving Britain again. So it had huge poignancy, this trip, because A, it's the last time the most travelled monarch in history is going to leave Britain. And B, she's going to Malta. And as you said, Natasha, as the Crown has repeatedly pointed out, it's one of the happiest places in her life. Those years as a naval wife back in the late 40s, early 50s, when she was not queen, she was just the Duchess of Edinburgh princess, and she could drive around in her car and go shopping and go to the beach. And it's always had these memories for her. And so it seemed entirely fitting that if she was going to sign off as a world traveller, where better than Malta? So she flew there with Prince Philip. She was joined by Prince Charles and the Duchess of Cornwall. I remember it culminated in a trip around the Great Harbour at Valletta in a boat. And there was a lot of reminiscing. She was introduced to people she'd known back then as a princess. I think even her lady's maid actually was there at one point. But throughout uh, this trip to Malta, there was just this palpable sense that the Queen was saying goodbye to world travel and really goodbye to her Commonwealth. And what were the standout moments of this visit? Well, actually, the one that sticks in my mind, it was a humorous one. It was a very upbeat moment. They had the traditional banquet for all the Commonwealth leaders. And it's always a tradition at these Commonwealth gatherings that the newest prime minister, uh, the most newly elected leader, if you like, is chosen to say a few words. And on this occasion, it was Justin Trudeau, who'd just become prime minister of Canada. And he made a rather endearing speech in which he reflected that he was the 12th Canadian Prime Minister of the Queen's reign. uh, And of course, an earlier one had been his own father. He'd met the Queen as a boy. So there was quite a lot of reminiscing going on. Your Majesty has been such a constant presence in the life of Canada that a modern history of our nation could be written entirely with vignettes from your life. Here's one. In 1951, Princess Elizabeth attends her first hockey game at the legendary Montreal Forum. And another, in 1959, Queen Elizabeth opens the St. Lawrence Seaway. And another, in a single tour in 1959, over 45 days, you visited 90 towns and cities. It is safe to say that you have seen more of Canada than almost any Canadian. Thank you, Mr. Prime Minister of Canada, for making me feel so old. (laughs) 
thinking about how the Crown would reimagine this, it's likely that they would go back and recreate the Queen's memories as a young princess in Malta, her driving around with Prince Philip, looking out to the beautiful sea and enjoying the sunshine. It's just reflecting the levity and the freedom that she felt at that moment in time, really tugging on the viewers' heartstrings. I thought that perhaps when this trip was over, there would maybe be a kind of sombre scene where an aide would kind of get the Queen's passport and lock it away for it to kind of sit and get dusty as her years stretched out ahead of her. But of course, the Queen never had a passport, did she? No, she didn't. When you're head of state, you don't need, as it were, a document from Her Britannic Majesty because you are Her Britannic Majesty. So uh, the Queen would just get on a plane. She never enjoyed the delights of passport control. And at the end of that trip to Malta, yes, she would have stepped off the plane and come home. And I think at the back of her mind, it would have been a poignant moment to think, right, I'm home and that's it. I've been everywhere. I have been right around this planet. I've met pretty much anyone who counts since the Second World War. I have been the first monarch to go to Russia, to China, to South America. I've welcomed all these leaders to Britain. I've been over to see all of them. I've been seen by more people than any monarch in history. And that's it. I'm never going abroad again. And that's quite a big thing to think. I mean, of course, she would have been perfectly capable of making future trips here or there. But you have to, when you're monarch, you have to sort of draw a line. And if she had then, after that, say, popped over to France, well, then maybe Spain or Germany or Ireland or someone would have said, well, hang on, you've gone to France. Why won't you come and see us? So in her own mind, she decided... That's that. But what a way to end all those great globetrotting adventures back in dear old Malta. One touching moment I do remember from that particular trip where at a reception she was introduced to this old man who had played the clarinet in the band at the Hotel Phoenicia. He remembered that uh, always, whenever the Edinburghs, as they were known, whenever the Princess Elizabeth and the Duke of Edinburgh arrived, there would always be a sort of, oh, look, they're here, and they'd strike up one of their favourite tunes and they would get straight on the dance floor because they both loved dancing. So maybe the crown would show the queen putting away her dancing shoes or putting away her sun hat instead of the passports. I think you might well have seen the band strike up and sort of Claire Foy take to the dance floor as the credits rolled. So today marked another step for Prince Charles on his journey to becoming king. For some time now, the Queen has been passing her duties to other members of her family. But given this is a monarch who saw service in World War II, no handover has been as significant as this one. So we think that for the final scene, the Crown would refer to the 2017 Remembrance Sunday. And the reason for this is that it was a very significant moment for then Prince Charles because he acted on behalf of the Queen in a very symbolic and public display. Traditionally, it would have been the Queen who would lay a wreath at the Cenotaph War Memorial. But from 2017, it was Prince Charles who took on this responsibility, with the Queen becoming just a mere observer. And this was another part of the transition of responsibilities that took place very gradually in full view of the public. Why did the Queen take this decision in 2017? As you say, Natasha, this was a very 
powerful symbolic moment and I'm quite sure the Crown would have really played this up and rightly so because the Queen was head of the armed forces, a very proud head of the armed forces and for her perhaps the most sacred day in the entire calendar was Remembrance Sunday, that day in November when Britain honours its war dead from First and Second World War and every other conflict since. She'd been attending ever since she was a a princess, and she would always be the one who laid the first wreath on behalf of a grateful nation. And it was something she'd done year in, year out. The format never changed. But it does involve stepping forward, going up a step, bending down, laying a wreath, standing up, bowing, and then stepping back down a step backwards and going back to her place. And it required incredible dignity and solemnity. And had she fallen over, it would have just been unbearable. It would just have been simply ghastly. Everyone would have just felt so bad, and most of all the Queen herself. Uh, let's not forget she turned 90 the year before in 2016. So again, I think it was one of those moments like, as we said earlier in this episode, back in 2011, she thought, right, I'm not going to do any more long-haul flying. 2015, she thought, I'm not going to do any more overseas travel. And then I think after her 90th birthday, she wisely took the view, okay, um, I think it's probably better that I don't uh, risk it at the Cenotaph this year. And again, she asked Prince Charles to step forward and do it on her behalf. So she was there on the balcony overlooking the Cenotaph. I was there on Whitehall, that Remembrance Sunday, and it, you just felt, good heavens, this is a moment, because there she was, still very much with us, still very much head of the armed forces, but looking down on her son performing this role that she'd done for as long as almost all of us had been alive. So it was another key moment and that gradual transition without any sort of sense of handing over ultimate power, but definitely handing over responsibilities to Charles. So for our imaginary episode of The Crown, this would be a really poignant image where Prince Charles would be stepping in for the Queen, laying this wreath, but the camera would focus on the Queen and her expression as this transition moved away from her. It was looking forward to the future and she becomes more of the past. And so to conclude this sombre moment at the end of what has been at times uh, an almost elegiac, very reflective episode... I can imagine the crown signing off with the immortal sound of the bugle playing the last post. Thanks so much for joining us for this special episode of The Crown, Fact or Fiction. Thank you, as always, for listening and, as always, for your comments. They've been coming in thick and fast. Here are a couple that we picked out this week. Uh, Annalise has written in saying, 
Great episode, always well researched. However, going back to previous seasons would be amazing. She signs off, greetings from Malta. Well, Annalise, Malta has been much in our thoughts today and we will certainly think about what you've said. We have another comment from Kelly who said, I didn't know I wanted this until I listened to it, except you need to tell us who you've cast in this series. Part of the fun of The Crown was the changing cast. Well, that might be something we do in a future episode, so watch this space. Yes, I think we've all got our thoughts about who will be playing what, so uh, don't go away, Kelly. Uh, But for now, thank you very much for listening. If you haven't already, please do leave a comment and a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to send us a message, please do or get our WhatsApp number from the show notes. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of The Crown Fact or Fiction. Goodbye. Goodbye. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Our hit series, Everything I Know About Me, is back for a brand new season. And this time, our guest needs no introduction. I'm going to find me, Darren! But here's one anyway. Hi, I'm Gemma Collins, and this is everything I know about me. If you think you know all about Gemma Collins, think again. Because this is the GC as you've never heard her before. It's been exhausting. Unashamed. And I was really heartbroken because I was pregnant and he was having an affair. Unfiltered. I have had an operation as well years ago. I have a designer vagina. Yeah, baby. I don't have camel toe. Unbelievable. And then they advised me, you need to have a termination. And, uh, yeah... I remember that being really stressful. Everything I know about me with Gemma Collins is out this Thursday wherever you get your podcasts.